Hello, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wokalek, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this creative little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Teresa Carl Sanders. Now, if you know Teresa like I know Teresa, then you're going to know her as that woman who wrote a cookbook based on a series of popular novels. Well, we're going to get to go in-depth into that with Teresa today, and we're also going to get to find out a lot more. For instance, we're going to get to hear Teresa talk about playing field hockey when she was growing up in Vancouver. She'll tell us how she met Howard, her husband of 24 years. As well, Teresa will talk a little bit about attending silent retreats. All that and more in a pretty fun interview that I had a little while ago with Teresa. And prior to doing this interview, I'd only interacted with Teresa a handful of times. But man, I had such a fun time chatting with her. And I think you're going to be able to pick up on that listening to the interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with Teresa Carl Sanders. Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. We're here on a uh, really sunny, chilly Saturday morning. Yeah, the fog has burned off. It's a really lovely day out there now, actually. Excellent. And yeah. you uh, you rode your scooter over here. I did. I was planning to take the car, but uh, within 10 minutes of just before I left, the sun came out. So on the scooter, I hopped and put my helmet on. <laughs> it was cool. It was cool to see you. I saw you from the window pull up there. I was like, oh, she's on a scooter. Look at that. I forgot you rode a scooter, actually. <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we originally got the first scooter here on Pender because we needed to get down to Poets Cove. Both Howard and I were working at Poets Cove. And uh, our shifts were not matching up. So that's why we bought the first scooter here oh. on Pender. Who rode it the most? Me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, no, so I'm the- scooter girl because I did actually have a scooter in Vancouver as well. So before I came here. Okay. All right. Well, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear some like Vancouver scooter stories as well, too. Like probably a little more dangerous than riding on the island here, I would imagine. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, jumping into the first traditional question we get to on this podcast, and that is what brought you to Pender Island? Um, wow. Okay. Well, I was living in Vancouver with my husband, Howard. He had come from England about, let's see, seven years beforehand. And we were living in Vancouver. I was uh, an operations manager at FedEx. So I ran downtown Vancouver for Federal Express. And one day we had a very unhappy customer come in and push came to shove. And a long story short is I ended up walking out after the police had escorted him off the premises. And I ended up walking out and up to the Broad Street Bridge, if anybody's familiar with the Broad Street Bridge. And before I even knew it, I had sort of pulled my FedEx cell phone out of my pocket and I had dropped it off the bridge. And then I realized I needed to quit my job because I had just done something a bit extreme, but that I had thrown my phone off the bridge. And so I needed to walk back to the office and phone my boss. And at that point, I gave him two weeks notice. And then I was out of there and we didn't have anything tying us to Vancouver anymore. And so we had a bit of money and we had enough for a down payment somewhere, certainly not in Vancouver. So we went on to some real estate sites and we found a really beautiful house on Main Island. And uh, we started dreaming and Howard expressed this wonderful thing that he'd always wanted to live on an island. And I was like, well, I grew up in Vancouver. The Gulf Islands are cool. Everybody always wanted to live in the Gulf Islands when I was in high school. So, hey, it turns out the house on Maine had already sold. And so we started looking at Pender and Pender came up because it was the only Gulf Island other than Salt Spring at the time that had internet. 
Oh. Cable internet. Dial-up was still on Galliano in Maine. And we, our plan was to come here without really much of a plan. But eventually we set up, we figured we'd set up an online business. So we needed cable internet. And so the reason we came to Pender is because Shaw was already here and had cable internet. <laughs> of course, once we got here and we were starting to look at houses, we realized how much more service was provided on Pender. So at the Driftwood, you know, we make fun of it a little bit, but there is a bank and there's a liquor store and a decent guy's size grocery store. And it looked like a good place to start a new life. And so, uh, like I said, without a plan, we bought a house and came, moved here and then figured out how things would go from there. Okay. And sorry, what year was this in? This is 2003. So we've been here 15 years. Okay. Wow. You know, I think it's a pretty common story for a lot of people to move to Pender knowing somebody here. And it sounds like you didn't know anybody. We didn't know anybody. No. Yeah. No. Okay. What a leap. <laughs> it was a rather random and it was based solely on uh, down payment sizes required for houses. I mean, we didn't have a lot. And we certainly, as I said, we didn't have anywhere near enough to get out of an apartment in Vancouver. We had an apartment in Vancouver and that's all we were ever going to have. And when we came here, we didn't know anybody, but it was a really, it's an easy community to get to know. I think sometimes it was easier back then to get to know people than it is now. Facebook keeps us in our houses and keeps us a bit anonymous, sometimes even in a small community. But the th great thing about Pender is the more often you go out, the more people you meet and you meet people that really connect with what you want out of Pender. So Nice. Well, you know, it's interesting because my wife and I came here in 2006 for a short period of time. Then we moved back in uh, 2010. And I know things changed a lot between those two time periods. But 2003, what were things like then? Comparatively, let's see. First of all, nobody, almost nobody had a phone. The community hall was a really, it was sort of more of a central place to meet than it is now, just simply because we have so many other things going on. We have the Hope Bay Kraken Theater now. We have so many things going on down in Hope Bay, which I think is great. Hope Bay was a quiet, quiet place back then. It had just been rebuilt after the fire by Hope Bay Rising, which was a group of community members that uh, came together to do that in a cooperative manner. And it's it was the same, but th there were the same things happened that do now. And that is that if you want to be busy on Pender, you can be busy every day of the week because there's a group or a happening or a show or something so much music. There's so much more music than there was back then. So many more uh, musicians have moved to the island and encouraged people to come out to different live events and stuff like that. But you know, the grocery store was the same. The liquor store was the same. The post, well, the post office was smaller, but hey, that's not that exciting, is it? <laughs> so, so things were... It's they're quieter, not and there wasn't, there certainly wasn't the uh, agricultural side of Pender that is growing again now. Like it's getting bigger. You, you know, there's a few more farms growing things. Back then, the farmer's market really was, well, it wasn't a farmer's market because there were only a few people that had um, a bit of produce that they were selling. There were no big farms selling. So this is great now, I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you said that you were working down at uh, Poets Cove in, uh, when you first came yes. to the island? Yeah. When we moved here in 2003, I think they were building it. Um, so Howard was the first brave soul. He went down there the first time when it opened. He was a member of the front desk staff. And I think he uh, worked there for about a year and a half. And I can't remember why he left, but then he did leave. And we had our own little things that we were doing. We had, you know, I worked at the post office for a while. I sold different things at uh, the farmer's market, um, some yoga props and then some other things, purses and all sorts of things, whatever creative thing took hold and could make us a little bit of money. It was an exciting time back then when we were younger and paychecks weren't steady. And then I went down there to work in the spa. 
which uh, I think a lot of people who know me on Pender will get a laugh out of because I'm not really, I don't come across as a spa girl. But I was the spa supervisor for about a year. And Howard was then actually at the front desk. And then he moved, he came back to Poets Cove and he was in housekeeping and he was the assistant manager of housekeeping. And then for one reason or another, this is actually quite a funny story. I ended up in housekeeping with Howard. So that's why we bought the scooter, to be honest, because I had my husband judging my housekeeping. And then on the ride home, we may have had a few heated discussions about my housekeeping comparatively Poets Cove versus home. So we decided that it would be better if we traveled separately back and forth to work. And to be honest, I didn't last very long in housekeeping. I decided to go and try and do something else. But Poets Cove has kept both Howard and I employed during our time here for a few months at least. Okay, right. <laughs> housekeeping is a tough gig. I've never done it, but man, it looks uh, like it's it's a challenging task. It's a humbling task. Humbling, it's, yeah. it's a humbling task. It was um, very good for my spirit. I think um, it taught me a lot of things about myself, but also I never, ever, ever leave a hotel room the way some people, I, the way I cleaned up after what some people left it as. So it was a growing experience, we like to say. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Well, for those listening who don't know what uh, Poets Cove is, uh, it's a resort that's on the South Island. There's uh, two different islands, a North and South Island on Pender Island, for those people listening who've never been here before, potentially. It's uh, almost all the way down at the uh, far end of the South Island, and it was uh, built around 2003, and I currently work there myself right now, actually, as a oh, uh, landscape. Yeah, oh, yeah, good yeah. for you. Yeah, just got laid off, actually, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, been there for a few years. But anyway, so you guys had time working there, and uh, I know that you went through a uh, transition in your life where you uh, transitioned into a, a new career. Yep. And I think it's a fascinating uh, subject to get into. So uh, let's let's hear you take it away on that. Okay. Well, I'd always wanted to be a cook. And, um, and I probably should have been a cook from a long time ago because I can talk about food. Anybody that knows me, I can talk or write or talk or I can do anything. I type all day about food. And what happened was that my father died and he died rather unexpectedly and rather quickly. And um, once the funeral was over and all those things, I realized that I needed to go away. So what happened was I ended up going to the state of Maine to a silent retreat for seven days where I didn't talk. Um, I just did yoga and I did speak privately with the yoga teacher a few times just to check in and see, make sure that we were all doing well. And what happened on that trip was that in a day when I was just sitting relaxing, my dad's voice came into my head and all the conversations we had about cooking. And I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with both my mom and my dad, but my dad in the morning on Sundays, we used to always cook breakfast together. And he had always expected that I would become a cook or a chef and life just didn't turn out that way. But I really took that message from that silent retreat. And I came home and I told Howard, who was very understanding that there was one spot left in cooking school in Vancouver. And it started on Monday. And I think I told him on a Wednesday and I had the money and I was going to register. And he said, go for it, go register. So I moved back to Vancouver and back in with my mom. Um, and it was so it was a good time because mom had just moved out of our old family home and she was getting used to being by herself. And so I moved back into Vancouver with her for six months and helped her with that adjustment. I went to school at night at the Pacific Institute of Culinary Arts, which is the cooking school just outside of Granville Island. So then I came back to Pender with a certificate in cooking and, uh, and I worked for Pierre for a little bit at uh, the Peace Do Girl a long time ago. Um, and then I made morning buns for the market for a couple of years. And I worked also at Hope Bay Cafe. And then one day I was in the woods and I was walking the dog, Coda. 
And all of a sudden, this picture popped into my head, and it was a description of some pigeon and truffle rolls. So they're rolls stuffed with pigeon and truffle in my favorite novel of the time, which was Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. And her book series is now eight books long, but at the time it was only five books long. And I had fallen in love with that series when we made our move to Pender, just because Pender sort of makes you want to read long books in front of the fireplace. And so when I was on that walk in the woods with the dog, this incredible dish popped into my head. And I said, wow, I could make that dish. I wonder what it would be like. So by the time I got home, I had the recipe half written in my head. And I had an email written that afternoon to Diana Gabaldon, the author, and her Canadian publisher forwarded it to her. And the next day, Diana got back to me and said, wow, what a weird idea, making food from my book. She said, but it sounds kind of cool. Try it. So I did it. And it worked out really, really well. Um, we got lots of interest from her fans as well as foodies from all over the world. And sort of that's the birth of Outlander Kitchen. And that's where my life has, that day in the woods, my life took a 90 degree turn. And then now it just keeps going up. It just keeps getting better and better. Wow. <laughs> well, a lot of things to unpack from there. And uh, the, the first thing that stands out to mind is I just want to back this up a little bit to the silent retreat in yes, the, the state yeah. of Maine. First of all, what made you want to go to a silent yoga retreat and why all the way? <laughs> to in, Maine. Yeah. Again, I tend to do things on the spur of the moment. I mean, we moved to Pender in 30 days. I, that's part of the story I forgot to mention was that by the time we looked at our first house and we chose a house and then we were here in 30 days. So it was a similar decision making process for this silent retreat. I was not doing well after uh, dealing with the grief of the death of my father. And I thought something weird and spontaneous might shake me up. And I'd been doing yoga for many, many years at that point. And the reason I chose the state of Maine was to be honest, there was one on Salt Spring at a similar time, but it was cheaper for me to fly to the state of Maine, travel by bus and pay for accommodation in U.S. dollars than it was to go to this silent retreat in Salt Spring. Are <laughs> you kidding me? What? No, I'm not kidding you. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> and I think also, I also tend to work a lot on uh, just what's sort of intriguing me and inspiring me at the moment. I saw this thing and I seemed to connect with the moderator of the retreat on the screen. She seemed to be somebody that I would really get along with. So, And the money just made it an easier choice, to be honest. Yeah, always does. So how I, I did a silent retreat. It was a, a meditation 10-day retreat. And okay. this is in 2004. But it really had an impact on my life. And uh, I, I remember a lot about it. But how was that experience for you? And clearly, something triggered within you to you mm -hmm. know make a change in your life and to go towards something. But any uh, things that you can pick out from that those seven days that, that happened as well as uh, other than like the profound transition into uh, going to yeah, the culinary arts. I, I think the culmination of that week was me, I was sitting on a hill and the sun was just sort of coming over the, over the wheat in the distance. So it's very, it's almost a bit hokey sounding, but this picture came into my mind. But the reason my mind cleared at that point was because I um, hadn't spoken to anybody and I hadn't shared anything. And I, I tend to talk and I tend to overshare. And I've found since that point, one of the biggest learnings I had from that week was that sometimes keeping things inside to allow your subconscious to process them is more important than sharing them. That doesn't mean I'm never going to share it. It just means literally for a short period of time, maybe a week in this particular case, um, I'm going to keep it within myself and see what happens 
when my subconscious processes it. And, and that's taken over a huge part of my creativity. I don't worry about things so much anymore. I sort of, if I'm having trouble making a decision or I'm having trouble with a recipe or, or anything big or small, I tend to let it, I tend to try and build a little mini wall in my head and not think about it too much. Let my subconscious process it. And I find a lot of the time the problems are solved the next morning when you wake up, you know, you're like, why, why am I using red wine when I could be using beer in this recipe? That's, that's a minor example of it. But major examples include, I mean, my father, one of the greatest lessons my father always taught me was never let anyone make you make a decision. So never be forced into a decision. Always put them off. Always say one more day until you're absolutely certain that the universe, he didn't say the universe because my dad wasn't that kind of guy. But he said that the universe will make the decision for you. Things will collate all together at once eventually, and the decision will be made in your head. You won't really have to make it. It'll more like a snap of fingers that will go. And that was, re that was reinforced at that silent retreat. I've done two other silent retreats since then, generally in times in my life when I'm really having trouble about what direction to go next or what to do. And I just find that not talking, and it's much more than not talking silent retreats. It depends on the one you go to, but no eye contact, um, no significant body language passed on to anyone. There's really no communication at all. And it's, and it's important. Not everybody can do it. I think the first two days are the hardest. And then uh, it gets easier as time goes on. People have difficulty believing that, but that's what I found. <laughs> that's funny. When uh, I went to go do it, I did it with my wife, Geneva, in New Zealand. Wow. And so no eye contact. Yep. And we were segregated as well, too. Okay. And we'd go into the temple to go meditate. And on day six, I was trying so desperately to make eye contact with her to be like, let's get out of here. <laughs> and she didn't look in my direction. But uh, if she and we talked about it afterwards because we stuck out the 10 days. And I'm so glad we did. Yes. But if we would have made eye contact, she would have been like, I would have been game. We were like, I was ready to go too. Right. But yeah, it's an incredible experience. So when you go to these silent retreats, are you allowed to write at all or? I have actually been given specific permission to write by one leader um, because she knew I was a writer. And she knew I was in a place where I was trying to sort of jumpstart my career again. But she was very specific and said only, you know, like just a phrase, just so that you don't, A, you don't constantly, you don't end up ruining your meditation, concentrating on that, you know, so you don't let it go. I can't let go of that recipe. I can't let it go. But just so that you can write down, so you know what you were thinking that later, later on, and you can let it go for now. Okay. Yeah. I, no, journaling is a bad idea. In the three times I've gone to silent retreats, I've um, pulled myself sort of out of the zone once by journaling too much. And, and then that led to reading, <gasps> reading fiction, which is a no, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's best to follow the rules. And I, and I'm not always a rule follower, but in those situations, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so you made the transition to going to school and then moving back to Vancouver and living with your mother. And, and then it's interesting because you mentioned that what happened after that about coming back to Pender and the beginning phases of doing the cookbook. But for those of us, myself included, who don't know much about the Outlander book or series, mm. could you describe that uh, for us? A yes, I can bit? give you a short uh, summary. So Outlander is a series of eight books. Um, it's now been made into a TV series, and it's basically the story of Claire Fraser, 
who is a World War II nurse, and she goes traveling with her husband after the war, after World War II, to Scotland, where she travels back in time by touching some stand, a circle of standing stones. And she is hurled back in time to 1745, where she meets James Fraser, a strapping red-haired Scotsman in a kilt. And the story is their journey from there. Um, and so there's time travel involved. There's people time traveling back and forth. They journey from Scotland to France, to the Caribbean, and eventually to America, which is where they settle. And it's just a really great ripping yarn, if everybody knows what that means, with lots of romance. And it's well um, researched. So the historical fiction component of it keeps a lot of people reading. And I know there's a lot of watchers of Outlander. So it's been made into a TV series now. And that's sort of what propelled the cookbook was the making of the TV series, because we've gone from a few million fans of the book to hundreds of millions of fans of the TV series. Wow. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, and when this idea first came to you when you were on the walk and you wanted to pull together a recipe that, sorry, it was pigeon and... The original, because it's 1745 and they are actually in Edinburgh at the time and it's rolls stuffed with pigeon and truffle. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe take us through the steps of how that all unfolded after the first communication with the author and, uh, and what happened since then. Yeah. Sure. So I put the recipe together. And as I said, it, it went over really well, especially when I made the pigeon into chicken. And then I turned the truffles into dried mushrooms because $500 truffles aren't really going to happen in fictional food. So, and then after that, Howard and I went to Scotland. And we went to Scotland and I called it a research trip and we ate a lot of food and we traveled up in the Highlands where the story takes, a lot of the story takes place. And when I came back, I realized that that's really just what I wanted to do. And it was a bit of a crazy idea. I had a lot of people look sideways at me when I was, when I explained to them that I had a food blog based on 18th century Scottish food because porridge and haggis is pretty much the only thing that comes to mind for a lot of people anyway, and bannocks maybe. And so... It was a bit of a slow start. It took me a couple of years to convince Diana that there was enough people to buy a cookbook based on a fictional book. And her agent certainly wasn't convinced. And it was a long road. I got a blog and I went on Facebook. And that's when I learned all about Facebook. And I've built it up to, I think, 75,000 fans on Facebook now. And that's where a lot of my readership comes from. And um, it's been a long, hard marketing road. I've met lots of nasty ogre type New York agents. And I've, <laughs> um, I've collapsed in tears on more than one occasion, Howard would tell you. And then in between, I've been running plates of food to the bedroom where the window is the best for light for photography. So all the, all the pictures for Outlander Kitchen get taken at the foot of our bed. And that went on for, gosh, five, six years. It went on until they made the TV series. And when they made the TV series, all of a sudden I had these ogre type people who's doors I had been knocking on were knocking on mine. And that was a really gratifying experience. And I found myself a really great agent from down in California, and she's worked really hard to help me. And uh, my photographer for the cookbook is now done. I do a little bit of it at the end of the bed, but most of it is done by Rebecca Wellman, who lives in Victoria. And she and I do everything with iMessage. She does all of the cooking of the recipes, all the styling of the recipes, and then shoots it and then sends it off to me and in real time. And we're making sure that the photo is the way we want it and all that stuff. It's really lovely old pender in many ways because I'm taking the pictures at the end of my bed, but then it gets very high tech when I'm sending things to New York for approval. And Rebecca's 
flashing me things on iMessage to make sure the peaches look okay. And, and that's basically, I mean, that's basically what I do now. And I'm writing the second, the sequel to Outlander Kitchen. So Outlander Kitchen 2. Um, and I'm just in the middle of recipe development right now. So I've got 80 recipes to write before the end of this year. Okay, wow. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you said that it was five or six years of slogging away and doing... So just so I understand the time frame properly, it was five or six years of doing a blog? Of before. doing a blog, the Outlander Kitchen food blog. Yeah, what kept you and going? I, uh, absolute determination that it was a good idea. Yeah. And I think it was a good idea. I was told early on in the process that there would never be another Julia Childs meaning that there would never be another unknown person to write a cookbook. Only famous people, only people in publishing, fame is called your platform. So only people with a high platform are going to have cookbooks published because A, cookbooks are sort of dying off a little bit with all the recipe searches that you can do on Google now and stuff like that. And so the second piece of advice I was given by somebody who now lives on Salt Spring, but he did live on Pender um, for quite a while, was to hook myself to a star. When I told him that this mean ogre New York agent had told me I'd never have a cookbook, he said, well, just hook yourself to a star. And all of these ideas coalesced together at very much the same time. That walk in the woods happened very soon after where I did find my subconscious put it all together without me really consciously thinking about it. And Diana was my star. And I hooked myself to her. And she's been very, very generous. And I'm very grateful. And I know that sometimes when I'm dealing with the Outlander fandom, and if you don't no fandoms. They're crazy, right? Like they're all over Twitter and they're all over Facebook and there's wars and fandoms and people are childish. And it's a little bit like being in high school and everybody wants to be the popular kid. In those crazy times, I'm I'm always trying to remember to tell myself that how grateful I am because without Diana and without that Outlander star to hook myself to, I wouldn't be anywhere. I wouldn't have a cookbook. That's for sure. It's too high of a leap for someone, an unknown person to get a, a really popular cookbook. Most cookbooks, you know, they sell maybe 3,000, 5,000 copies in Canada and Outlander Kitchen is now in its eighth printing. So it's 95,000 copies in print. Wow. Yeah. So it's done very well and it's in four languages. So it's in English and it's in French and German and funnily enough, Polish. Okay. <laughs> Congratulations for starters. Like it's such a great story because like I love the background to this is just about uh, a sheer determination from your own being and your own self and a mm. belief that this is something worth continuing onward with. Also, I think at that point, you know, you reach a a point where you either have to quit or you just have to persevere with dogged perseverance to get through it. I'm glad I didn't quit. Um, there were lots of times when I wanted to because I didn't make any money off Outlander Kitchen in those five or six years. So we were short on cash and Howard was very, very supportive um, because he knew it was a good idea too. And I'm very grateful to him for uh, <laughs> for allowing it because I'm just surprised it took that long. Nobody thinks it's going to take that long. It takes that long every time unless there's a miracle that happens. Five or six years from idea to publish. That's about the average. That's cool and sad to hear. <laughs> yeah, it, it's sobering at times. <laughs> All right. Well, you've mentioned your husband, Howard, uh, a number of times here. So let's let's talk about uh, Howard a little bit. Uh, your husband, when did you meet him and how did you meet him? I um, met him in England. I was in Ireland in Dingle, which is the town with the most pubs per capita in all of Ireland. That's not why I was there. Anyway, I've met this lovely English woman in a youth hostel, and I ended up traveling back to her hometown in England called Leighton Buzzard, which is about 50 miles north of London. And the next morning, we woke up, and this guy was knocking on the door. 
And he had these shady glasses and he looked totally shady. And I didn't trust him for the first 48 hours at all. But he came in and he was off work and he just came in and settled in. And friend I had met was Yvonne and he was her best friend. And so for the next two weeks, we hung out. He took me on a really lovely date in Oxford and he showed me the museums and the shops. And and I remember thinking just how smart he was and how much fun he was to be with. And I eventually ended up sort of calling my dad and saying, I've changed my ticket and I won't be home. I'll be home three weeks later after I said, so I kept hanging out with Howard. And then we had to say goodbye. And then he phoned a few months later after I'd come home to Vancouver, I was living in a house in Vancouver and he phoned and he said he was coming for Christmas. So he came from Christmas and we had a two year long distance relationship. He was at that point, Howard was a tour guide. So he took um, senior citizens all over on trips all over the world. So a few times I met him in exotic places around the world to keep the romance alive. And then uh, eventually he proposed because he felt guilty because he was leaving all the time. And so he picked up his whole life in England. Um, he had lived in Africa f- for years before that, but he was back in England and he picked it up and he moved here and he's been here with me now for 20, we've been married for 23 years. Okay. And he's been here for 24. Yeah. Wow. Wow, I know. Crazy. <laughs> I don't think... I'd love to know what my parents were thinking when I told them we were getting married. I'm sure they didn't have much hope. But anyway, Howard is much loved by... was much loved by both of them. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's so interesting sometimes, actually almost all the time when I hear stories about how people meet and just these uh, really random circumstances. Uh, I mean, yeah, I told the short version of the story. There's actually a dolphin swim involved in the whoa, whole story. Okay. I know. I want to hear about a dolphin swim. <laughs> well, that's why we were in Dingle, because there was a dolphin in the bay, Dingle Bay, and you could swim with the dolphin. It was back in the 80s before we realized this was a terribly wrong thing to do and ex- exploitative. So my friend wanted to swim with the dolphin. So she went off and swam with the dolphin, and I ended up going to the pub instead with Yvonne from England, and we just spent the night together. And had a really great time. And Yvonne actually ended up being Howard's best man at the wedding. So it was a lo- it's a long, crazy story also that involves a few other things. But Howard, yeah, I think we were just meant to be together. I don't know. It's weird. It's a totally random meeting. <laughs> well, it's, you know, a lot of people do meet when you're traveling. I think that when you're traveling, you're, you open yourself up more to other people. Just, you know, to- like not necessarily like romantic interests exclusively, no. but just I think the guards down and you're just more willing to be vulnerable with people because... You, well, you're out there already, sort of. Yeah. 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 And you don't know if you're going to ever see this person again. So... True. You know, you let that guard down. But all right. So, and when you got, and you guys lived in Vancouver for a period of time before moving to Pender Island. Yeah, we lived in... Uh, so, we got married in 1995 and we lived there until 2003. And then we moved here in June 2003. June 19th, 2003. Okay. Still remember the day. June 19th. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's let's jump into the next traditional question that we always get to mm-hmm. on this program, which is, of course, uh, who has helped you along the way on Pender Island since we've been here? And uh, Teresa, who's helped you on Pender Island? Okay. Well, I think the first one will go, I'll, I'll name the mysterious man who told me to hook myself to a star. And that was Vlad Kaczynski. And he was actually a night school teacher of mine in Vancouver. And we found each other on the ferry one night and then connect each other. And I had been taking this class with him for three weeks before I even realized he lived on Pender with me. We'd both been traveling traveling to Vancouver. And so he told me that piece of advice on BC ferries one night on a night trip back to Pender to hook myself to a star. And that's a piece of advice I'll always be grateful for. Another uh, person who really helped me actually was Pierre Delacote. He is 
he's got a fiery temper at, at times because he is a chef. We all do. But he taught me how to plate food in probably a half an hour. He taught me more about plating food than the other four French instructor chefs I've ever worked with. So big thumbs up to Pierre for helping me with that because it's a hard skill. And he's, a, he's actually an artist, Pierre. He's a very, he's a great food artist. And then I think the other person who I'm going to say is Susan Tate. And I love Susan Tate. Susan Tate Sharman, some of us know her as. And Susan was of great consolation to me when my father died. She really came forward and stepped up and, and helped me get through a difficult time. I'm not even sure if she's aware how much she helped me, but I hope she hears this because she really, really did many years ago. She was a great support. Fantastic. You, you mentioned Pierre and the uh, Pizzu Grill that uh, you worked at. I wasn't on the island when that restaurant was open or maybe just very briefly, but how was the experience working uh, for Pierre in that uh that situation. That was right at the end of the piece too. So things had changed a little bit for him by then. But the great thing about Pierre is he's he's worked, you know, how almost his whole life in food and so he can tell you stories of apprenticing as a 13-year-old sort of in the German on the German French border and he'll tell you stories of a, a terror anyway, it was an abusive system that. And he's just he's a, he's such a typical French cook that you can almost rely can almost predict what he's going to say in a service, in a food service. Kitchens are weird places. If you've never worked in them, um, it's hard to explain what goes on, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of swearing and it's hot. So um, tempers flare up very quickly. But the thing I loved about Pierre was his temper would flare up and then all of a sudden he'd be back on even keel again. So you just move on. Whereas some chefs really let you have it all night long. But Pierre was a good teacher. And I don't know if people know that about Pierre. So I want to make sure that everybody knows. That's great. Thanks for sharing. So just to recap there, we got uh, Vlad, Pierre, <laughs> and Susan as the yeah. three people that have uh, helped you along the way. And thank, thank you for uh, for answering that question. Because the reason that I asked that of people, just for people listening, is that I really think it's uh, wonderful to see the unseen connections that exist between people on the island. And that uh, I've had a number of people say I've received help from so many people on the island, and they feel uncomfortable singling out any particular individuals, which I totally understand. But at the same time, I think it's really beautiful thing to show some uh, specific personal connections that exist on the island. So thank you yeah. for doing that. Appreciate that. Well, thank you to all three of them. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, and then you mentioned that Susan was helpful in the time after your dad's passing. I, I don't know if you'd like to talk about your parents a little bit, but uh, where where were your parents born? My mother was born in Calgary, and then her family moved to Vancouver, BC, let's say, um, when she was about five. And my dad was born born in Vancouver in the east side. And uh, they both went to school together from the age of grade nine. They went to Britannia in Vancouver. And I believe they dated from grade 10 on. But then my mom broke up with my dad because he wouldn't take her to a university dance or something. So anyway, then his best friend ended up setting them back up together on a blind date when they were 23 or 24. And then they got married at 25. So they've always known each other. And they have a big circle of friends in Vancouver that is sadly shrinking. I always had, you know, 14 or 15 extra aunts and uncles that were just family friends that were always around. And we were always going on summer trips with them. We went to Asuias every summer with the same group of 14 people and all their children for, gosh, almost 10 years of my life. So very stable, very happy 70s childhood from Vancouver. <laughs> okay, well, what was going on in the Soyuz? What, uh, why were you going there all the time? Oh, well, we were up at a Soyuz Lake and we all stayed at the Wayfarer Motel, I think it was called. It was on the beach, in the pool, 
and we would, uh, and then there was water skiing three times a day, early in the morning if you got up, and then always at lunch and always just before dinner. Well, I've never water skied before. You've never water skied? No, how is it? <gasps> it's so much fun. I mean, I haven't done it in since I was 15 years old. So, yeah, that's a long time ago. Oh, it's amazing, man. It's it's better than snow. I like it better than snow skiing, but I don't like snow skiing. So, uh, it's it's kind of free. When you fall, it hurts, but you know, you just get back up. <laughs> it looks like it hurts pull, a lot. You pull your bathing suit back up and you just get back up. <laughs> <laughs> no, bikinis are a bad idea, but other than that, everything's good. <laughs> okay. So you grew up in, uh, in Vancouver? In Vancouver. I was born and raised in Vancouver. What yeah. part of town did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up on the west side. So uh, very near to Eric Camper High School, 33rd and Oak. Some people might call it Shaughnessy. Sure. That's the neighborhood. Okay. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have two brothers, two uh, much older brothers. So one's eight years older and one's 10 years older than I am. What are the names? Trevor and Ron. Trev's the eldest and then Ron. Ron is currently in Japan and he works with the UN on heritage communities. He's a specialist in <laughs> thatched roof houses in Japan. Strange, but true. My other brother, Trevor, it works in Vancouver and he's a contractor. So he does a lot of renovations and new home construction with which isn't surprising in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Okay, so two two older brothers and you are the youngest? And I am the youngest, yeah. I am too. Congratulations, a very yeah. privileged. I'm position. sort of Yes, it is a privileged but I'm very much an afterthought thought I think, but but it turned into a privileged position, so yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so how was it growing up uh, in Vancouver? Two older brothers are quite a bit older and uh what Yeah, I mean I had a pretty nice childhood. It was uh I mean, I played a lot of sports. I think that's maybe something a lot of people won't know is that I was really quite a jock <laughs> until I was about 25. Let's so hear it. What, I, uh, I started with soccer and then baseball, but field hockey was really the thing. So I played and won national championships in field hockey for the BC team four times before under the age of 18, I think. And then I did actually try out for the Olympic team, but I didn't make it. Everything would have been different. It's okay. No, no. Field hockey players don't make a lot of money. So I'm sure I would have been a postman or something like that. But hey. Yeah. <laughs> Got to have another job if you're if you're a professional field hockey player. It doesn't pay the bills. Okay. But uh, you played a lot of sports when you were growing up. That's cool. You know, like it's interesting. Uh, the last interview I did it was with Joe and he was just talking about his love of basketball. And I think it's really interesting to hear oh. about people's uh, love of sports uh, when they were younger. Part of the show is to sort of like tap into things that we don't know about uh, individuals who live on the yeah, island and totally. uh, a bit about their past. But what was it that really drove you towards playing lots of sports? Oh, well, my whole family were jocks. My dad was a big sportsman. And after Sunday breakfast was over, dad and I would pretty much loaf around on the couch and watch sports. So I grew up watching like football, baseball, hockey. I can't stand football, American football anymore. But he also liked the good old Canadian sports of curling. He was actually a big curl. My parents both curled. So we used to watch a lot of curling together and golf. And I, to this day, I can still watch golf and curling and I find them quite comforting. Yeah. And it's how I relax. Like I'm quite happy to even darts. I'm happy to watch darts, billiards. Yeah. I'm a fun, fun house guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, do you play darts or billiards yourself? Or? Um, we had a pool table growing up, so I wasn't bad. Darts, I'm a terrible dart player. I'm just brutal. Yeah. Oh, okay. So not too many 180s. <laughs> no. No. Well, what, like at the point that you're at in your life right now, what, uh, what's sort of tickling your imagination right now? What are you doing creatively? Like, uh, and what's, what's uh, filling up some of the time outside of work? Um, I don't have any time outside of work, no. to be honest. 
That's terrible. No, I know. I have Sundays. Sundays, I don't do anything. And the gar- I find the garden to be, even when it's pouring rain, to be a good place to be. I try and turn my brain off on Sunday. Just because I'm in the, the place right now where I'm writing this cookbook and I have to have 80 recipes written by the end of, uh, it's two, I have two months to go. And that's a lot. So pretty much while I'm sleeping, while I'm doing the laundry, while I'm jog, I jog early in the morning to try and shut my brain off too. It doesn't work right now though. Food inspires me right now. So every time, I mean, that's all I look at is food and old food and old cookbooks. I love looking at old, like sort of 18th century cookbooks. So I just bought another one of those. So that's kind of, that's my bedtime reading. Where do you, where do you find those things? <laughs> um, on Amazon. A lot of them are already on Google. Like you can just look them up online, but I like having the physical book in my hand and Amazon, they're reprints. They're not, they're not valuable and they're not worth anything, but they're just, but it's just a reprint of an 18th century Scottish cookbook. And I just got another English cookbook and I've got actually an American, I'm trying to find an 18th century Southeast American cookbook. So it's all corn and pork at that time. You know, it just occurred to me, I never really considered the fact that a cookbook would be produced in the 18th century. The first cookbooks were produced early in the 18th century. Okay, that's interesting. (laughs) And so, like, how many recipes per book? Does it vary? Oh, yeah, they're totally crazy. They're completely different than a modern cookbook. They assume, first of all, that you know the basics of cooking. So most instructions that would take two pages. Now they give you maybe a paragraph in each of these cookbooks. It's like, make a cake. (laughs) Okay. Doesn't even tell you. And it, anyway, they're very interesting, but what they do is give me an idea of what the original dish would have looked like. It's very unlikely for most of these dishes that they make it into the cookbook as an unadulterated 18th century recipe. It's just like most of them are inedible by today's standards. And then you add, other people's um, certain dietary restrictions and things like that. So um, like gluten-free and things like that, I've been asked to try and make more gluten-free recipes and things like that, even though it's an 18th century cookbook. So cookbooks are, they're generally just a, a brief description of what the dish should look like, but it's not what you think of as a cookbook. The best instruction, uh, the, my favorite one is for a, a dish called Pau Saudi, which is like a sheep's head stew. Whoa. And the first step is to procure yourself a fresh sheep's head and then scrape the hairs from its nostrils with a spoon. Okay. So, yeah, we don't go full 18th century very often. (laughs) (laughs) No, but then I'm actually, I find that really interesting because, you know, sometimes when I see imagery of the past, like the 1920s or 1930s of a downtown scene, it it appears to me as if things really haven't changed that much, right? There's automobiles, there's gas stations, there's advertising, there's buildings, but... The idea of a cookbook uh, being published in the 18th century, like, is there anything that you're able to um, draw from reading those about like what the times were like, other than people were just expected to know how to cook, basically? Or is there anything you're drawing from that? Well, you draw sometimes like in times of bounty. So in times of harvest, then the recipes are in, in these cookbooks are generally organized by season. So that is one thing that that's changed is we don't really, we're trying to eat more by season again now. But how we eat has really radically changed even since the 70s, right? But in these old cookbooks, in these 18th century cookbooks, it's generally by season. So you'll get some dishes that are really full of rich green vegetable things. But most of them, depending on what the cookbook is for, if it's for a normal sort of middle class household, then it'll be mostly meat. 
Whereas for the really poor, I mean, they didn't have cookbooks, but the really poor up in the highlands, they were passing the bone around amongst the crofts. So one night, the first family would use the bone in their soup. And then the next night, the second family would use the bone and it, and, and it would make its way around so that everybody had the bone one day a week. Well, you can imagine what the bone was like by the seventh day. It didn't have a lot of marrow left in it or any nutrition left in it. So really hard times, you know, and they'd lived on kale, like literally lived on kale. And then when the kale failed in February, as it does here, even on Pender, they moved on to nettles, <laughs> which is another familiar green here on Pender. Um, it was really hard times. So the cookbook doesn't reflect that kind of hard time because, I mean, nobody wants to eat cruel. But my, his, my research has been fascinating. It's been fascinating to know, to really realize how far things have changed. Yeah, Eli, I just got a wave of sadness as you're telling <laughs> that story about passing the bone around. Yeah. Like, holy smokes. It's just something that we don't really have much of a connection to. Uh, wow. No, and, and if you didn't have the bone and the only thing was in the, in the pot was nettles and you had four or five kids to feed and you'd already been cutting up peat in the field and marching at home four or five miles all day long. I mean, it was a really hard, I can go on and on and on with these depressing stories, but you know, there's no window in the croft. The only light is fire, a peat fire. If you've ever had a peat fire, it glows. It doesn't give off light. Like it, it's orange, but it doesn't really give off light. And the woman of the house would have been preparing dinner, crouched on a stool over that fire, not a comfortable kitchen. They didn't even have a table, to be honest, most of them. So it's an interesting time to study. Um, and it's an interesting thing to try and turn it around into a cookbook without being, I mean, I, I don't want to forget all their struggles or anything, but we obviously can't do a lot of real Highland cooking from the 18th century because there wouldn't be a lot to cook. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> uh, a lot of nettle recipes. Thank goodness Jamie and Claire go traveling. <laughs> oh, okay. The, those are the characters? Those the are the main two characters, yes. Okay. All right. They're time traveling. They're well, like... Claire time travels, yes. Oh, okay. But yes, Jamie, Jamie does not. can't. No, 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 no. Okay. How come he can't time travel? He's not as cool as Claire. No, yeah. uh, no. He just, it's, it's not in the genes, you know? <laughs> okay. So it's a gene-based time traveling like, scenario. A, there is a whole, yes. Believe it or not. And the author was actually, she was actually a scientist. She's a PhD and a university lecturer before she wrote. So she, she comes from a very serious background. So she actually does have all of this time travel mapped out and can explain the process and her theory of time travel to you. Fun. <laughs> I love the idea of time travel. You know, I'm going to jump on a ferry later on today and I'd rather just not necessarily time travel. Well, maybe I could time travel to Vancouver today. That'd be great. Hey, could Vancouver from like, yeah. Mid-70s. I really like Vancouver in the mid-70s. It's awesome. That'd be a great place to be. Vancouver in the mid-70s. I've seen some pictures. <laughs> the cars look amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And it was actually just a really small town. It was just a not a big city like it is now. Speaking of change, whoa. But yeah. What do you remember from... Uh, well, there was no Canby Bridge, right? There was nothing built up on the down in False Creek. There were n None of those towers were there. It was all industrial. Granville Island wasn't... In, I mean, it was... The cement plant was what was on Granville Island, and it's still there. But Expo 86 changed it all. It totally did, for yeah. sure. <clears throat> I've seen pictures of, of what that looked like prior to Expo 86. It was just a, a wasteland. Totally. <laughs> it was totally an industrial wasteland. And I mean, it would have changed because all cities with – all ports on in all cities have been regenerated, and they're all condos now. I mean, pretty much you go anywhere, London, anywhere. London, New York. Yeah, it's just sad when you grow up in a place and you've seen it change and – it doesn't remind me of home anymore. 
Yeah, for sure. I I grew up in Vancouver, too. I grew up in Burnaby. Okay. Yeah, it does not feel comfortable being there anymore. No. I mean, everybody's really... I have to say the bus is really nice. Every time I'm on that bus, everybody's always thanking everybody and getting up and being really nice. Skytrain's a bit of a different story. But the bus seems to be nice. But yeah, I can... I have to go in and visit my mom and do some shopping. That's always fun. Right. Well, let's bring it back to Pender for a little bit here. Do you see yourself living on Pender for a long time to come? I think so. It's a it's a really great home base for us. We really like our house. It's not very big. It's it's sort of us and we like to travel a lot. And I think Pender's a good place to come home to. Yeah. I don't think I... I well, listen to me talk about Vancouver. I couldn't go back to Vancouver and I, I couldn't imagine living in a city anymore. So... Why is that? Just because it's been so nice being in a small community or... I think so. And also, <laughs> we could never... I mean, realistically, we'd be living in a box, a skybox. They like to call them just a, an apartment in wherever, whatever city we chose to live in. Um, and I like the people here and I like the lack of anonymity here. I like going into the grocery store and knowing people. I find it comforting. I thought I, I didn't think I would like that. And a lot of people who knew me growing up were like, oh, Teresa won't work on Pender. But I really love it here. Yeah, the whole grocery store thing, it's interesting <laughs> because uh, I think what's so great about that is that you're being seen as an individual, as a person, and you're being seen. And when you're in the city, you're not really being seen. You're specifically trying to not be seen by people because, you know, totally. there's, there's so many people around and <laughs> there's just too much input, right? So I was trying to explain that to my mother the other day. Actually, I rode in the bus from the ferry into my mom's place and I was, she was saying, how was the ride? And I said, it was fine. I said, it was just, there was a lot of humanity. And I was too much to deal with. And she looked at me like I was a little bit crazy. But um, I maybe that's a pender attitude. Yeah, there were just too many beings and souls. And, and I, uh, yeah, on the bus. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, on pender, what, what part of the island really uh, do you like the most? Like, what is your favorite part of the island, would you say? Um, oh, I don't know. I My favorite thing has always been go walking with the dog and trails. And we mostly stick to Magic Lake just because we can start and end at home. But the tip of South Pender has always been special because we've always taken the dogs down there for our long weekly walks. And Eagle's Bluff. I do a lot of thinking up there. Sometimes I take the dog up there. and Just oh. Oak oh, Bluff. Oh. Sorry, I always call it Eagle Those Bluff because I see eagles up there. But Oak Bluff is, one, is the one I mean. Yeah. 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 That place is great. I know. I think a few of us find uh, inspiration up there. Anywhere that's quiet. I also find inspiration in the pub. <laughs> What can I say? <laughs> what can I say? If you go, I, I'm down there at least twice a week working just because working at home, the walls start to close in on me. So the view at the pub is so beautiful and they're so patient with me. They let me put my headphones on and I just sit and type away for a couple of hours, have a beer. Yeah. 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 And, and like you say, see people. <laughs> Here I am. Yeah. I <laughs> show work from show home. myself to people. <laughs> I'm still on the island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, where do, you, where do you see this going in the next five years or so with the new cookbook? And so like, what, what sort of uh, dreams and ambitions do you have for where to take it? The second cookbook we think is going to come out in September 2019. And then um, that'll probably take a year of sort of marketing. And I'll do a little bit of a book tour and things like that. There is a potential third volume of Outlander Kitchen. Um, but that won't be for a few years because Diana has to, the author has to finish the rest of the books and the series before I can do a third cookbook. So I've got this idea brewing in my head about another cookbook and it has to do with cities of Europe. And it's sort of what I do now, taking um, inspiration from texts and maybe from historical texts and things like that and finding food in there 
and then wrapping that all up in some sort of cookbook package. That's about as far as I've gotten with that. <laughs> Fair enough. And something else that I'm curious about as well, too, because I think that it has a lot of universal appeal to it. The answer to this question is that in terms of uh, finding success for yourself in life, you described perseverance and mm. uh, hard work that helps get you to where you're at right now. But is there anything that you can recommend to people that a key to try to generate some success within an idea that they have to sort of uh, push it forward? Yeah. I think the best thing to do is to clarify the idea first and to really know what it is that you want to do, even if it's just a single painting or if it's a new life plan, clarifying and, and sitting with it. And what I've said before about being paid, we're so fast paced these days. If we need to give ourselves a little bit of more patience and our time for our brains to process things. Like I said before about processing things in subconscious, it doesn't necessarily always happen overnight. Sometimes it takes a week or two. Sometimes it takes a year. But listening to yourself and not always listening to what other people are telling you is sometimes the way forward. I mean, I got told a no a lot of times and that it was a bad idea and a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm glad I didn't believe it because they were all wrong. That doesn't mean everybody's wrong all the time, but the more you clarify what your idea is and the more you can explain it to people concisely, the better it is because the clearer it is, obviously it's the clearer in your mind, right? And yeah. clarity moves you forward, I find. I guess that helps from a visualization standpoint that the more you're able to express it through words and repeat that is that the more you're kind of visualizing about it as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think probably my advice is coming, I'm not a visual person. Um, I'm not a visual artist at all. So maybe my advice is coming from that of being a writer, but you need to be able to explain it to yourself. And then the next test is you need to be able to explain it to somebody else. That's how you teach. When, when you teach, you're explaining it to somebody else. And that sort of solidifies your own knowledge of the subject. That's, I think, part of the reason it took a long time for me or for five or six years is A, it was part of the process, but B, I wasn't always clear what I was trying to do. So even though I, my final goal was always a cookbook, there, I was unsure of how to get to that final place. And there's lots of different paths to get to your final goal. But you just have to be willing to keep clarifying and keep readjusting your path, whatever comes from the clarification, right? Sometimes you take another 45 degree turn when you didn't plan to. I've done that a couple of times where I, my, I had a plan and then all of a sudden it wasn't working and radical, sometimes radical things and they don't have to be truly radical, but shaking things up a little bit in your own life or in your plan can push you forward too. You're always trying to go forward, but always looking in your to yourself too to make sure that's where you really want to go, right? You're pointed in the right direction. I heard this quote once, even if you're falling on your face, you're still moving forward. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of great ones like that. I like that one. You are. <laughs> Totally. Well, <laughs> Teresa, like, I never know how these interviews are going to go specifically, but I've totally enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I've really much. enjoyed it too. Is it over already? We're pretty much oh, over. Wow, we're great. we're nearing the end <laughs> here, but okay. like we can we can have a little slow wrap up if you want. But uh, and I just noticed your glasses. I didn't notice that uh, you've got like nice little red tier frames there that people will see in the photo after we're going to take a photo. Oh, good. Right okay. But wonderful looking glasses there. But is there anything else that uh, you want to end off with and have to say? You're shaking your head. No, no I don't think so. I what? talked for like a long time there. It's a lot of talking for me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've asked me a couple of questions that made me think about things I haven't thought of in a long time. Okay. That's always a good thing. It is. It is nice to think about things you haven't thought of in a long time. <laughs> All right. Well, 
No pardon words? Go forth and be creative, Pender. There you go. Okay, <laughs> Teresa, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Chris. Okay, well, to honor that interview, I decided I'd make my way down to the community labyrinth that's located at the Anglican Church, and that's at 4703 Canal Road. So that's on the North Island, and it's just down from Scarf Road. And the reason I decided to come down here was to honor something Teresa mentioned in the interview about the circle of standing stones and traveling back in time, and I'm not aware of any of those existing on Pender Island except a very small version I made on my own property years ago, but I thought that might be cheesy to record something from there. So here I am. And this is my first time at the labyrinth. And I walked through it and around it and in it and out of it. And it was really great. I totally enjoyed the experience. Now, for those who don't know what labyrinths are, there's a brochure underneath a tree here to tell you some more information, but I'll read a little bit from it. And it says that, uh, Labyrinths and mazes are often mixed up, but maze is a puzzle meant to confuse, while labyrinth is a single path that leads the walker to the center and out again. In a receptive frame of mind, one can experience a refreshing form of meditation. This meditation can bring forth healing of mind, body, and spirit, and can spark creativity. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> you can walk barefoot or in your shoes. Your walk pace is set by the first step and can be fast or slow. You may find your pace is decided by your state of mind. You may walk slower if you're feeling contemplative, spiritual, or searching for an answer to a question. The brochure goes on to give more information about labyrinths, but this is such a little gem. There's some fallen maple leaves on the ground that is covering a portion of the labyrinth at the moment, and there's a chill in the air, and it's actually Halloween evening right now, and I want to thank Teresa once again for that interview. And I want to thank you for listening. Until next time.